podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast. It is Monday, the 12th of April, and we're brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtual privacy network, which allows you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix, things like that. Use Now TV outside the UK if Brexit is currently stopping you from doing so. Also keeps your data safe online, which is obviously very important. LibertyShield.com, use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off checkout. Once again, that's LibertyShield.com. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out HomeofHopcroft.co.uk for any giftware or homeware needs that you may have. Right, folks, it is Monday, so we have had eight Premier League games over the weekend, starting with Friday night. Fulham nil, Wolves won. This was a really poor result for Fulham because of how the weekend turned out. They played quite well in the game. They had the better chances. You could argue they were definitely the better team. The decision to leave Zambo and Gisa once again sitting on the bench was bizarre by Scott Parker. This was the type of game that would have suited him. He did come on. He didn't have much of an impact, but he's not a player that impacts games off the bench. He's the type of player that when you play him, you have to play him from the start. He'd been Fulham's best player for most of the season. And at crunch time, in the run-in, Parker has decided to leave him out and go with Lamina and Reed. And Lamina has played most, well most of the season. Reed has been inconsistent. I know Reed helped them get to the Premier League, but he's not, he's not close to the player that Zambo is right now. So it is strange that Parker continually leaves Zambo out. It's also strange that he continues to play Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who's not had a particularly good season for them, especially in that number 10 position. If you haven't been getting the goals from your number 9, which they haven't with Mitrovic, they need to be getting more from the the number 10. And unfortunately, Loftus-Cheek isn't providing that for them. He had a couple of decent chances in this game that he, you know, he, he scuffed. Um, Adama Traore won it for Wolves very, very late on, 92nd minute. Maybe some question marks over the goalkeeper. The angle that Adam is shot from, he has no real business in scoring from. He does make incredibly good contact with the ball and it pings into the roof of the net. But I think you do have to just ask questions over Ariola. Maybe his positioning wasn't great. Uh, like I say, because of how the weekend turned out, this is a big, big blow for Fulham. They end the weekend six points from safety. Six points from Newcastle and Brighton. Brighton have a game in hand they play this evening. Seven points behind Burnley. It's now four straight defeats. With that level of talent in their squad, that's very, very disappointing. Very, very disappointing. And I follow a couple of Fulham podcasts on social media and they were asking questions after the game in terms of 
you know, sum that up in three words, what needs to change. And I find that the Fulham fans' loyalty to Parker, while admirable, is misplaced. I saw very few question the manager, and I've been doing doing it all season for them. Scott Parker's not a Premier League caliber manager. He may be in a couple of years. Right now, he's not. If Rafa Benitez had been Fulham manager all season, I'm certain they would have finished 11th, 12th, 13th. With the level of talent in that squad, that's where they belong. Ariola is an exceptionally good goalkeeper. Anderson is a very good centre-back. Tosin is a very good young centre-back. Has some errors in his game, still developing. Little bit fortunate in this game. Um, William Jose had a goal chalked off. It looked like the player was onside. The Tosin had played him onside. Little bit of controversy with VAR. But he's a very good young centre-back with a lot of promise. I'm not sure why Congolo has come back into the team at this point of the season, given he's missed most of the season and he is, clearly isn't up to speed. Uh, Ola Ain is a good player. Oh, sorry, it wasn't it wasn't Tosin that made that error. It was Terence Congolo. It was Congolo that made that error. Tosin is the better centre back. He's been dropped out as well. Um, Kenny Tete is a, is a solid player. Lamina is a good player. Robinson's a good player. He's gone with a front three in Loftus-Cheek, Mitrovic and Reed, where only really Bobby De Cordova-Reed has performed well across the season. But he's not a big-time goal scorer. And yet, on his bench, he's got Josh Madge sitting there. Cavaliero's been a big threat all season. Now, his finishing has been quite poor, but he has been a threat. I know the lack of Luckman was a big lo- a big loss for them in this game. He's been really, really good throughout the season. But I, I just I don't really understand what Parker's doing. I don't know how he's survived this long. It is almost like they've just accepted relegation. I know they don't have a massive wage bill to worry about next year. Most of the players that I've listed are, are in on loan. So they can just let them go. But then they've got to drop then into the championship and rebuild again. And maybe they'll rely on the players that got them promoted. But there's no chance that Zambo and Gisa is dropping down with them. So there's their best player gone. Um, they'll need to invest in a goalkeeper. Tosin and Kenny Tete, they own. I don't know if Tete will be too keen on playing in the championship given... You know, he has ambitions to stay in the in the Netherlands national squad. Reed they own, Robinson they own. Robinson may get Premier League looks this this summer. Um Mitrovic, will he be willing to stay another year in the championship? Questionable. At his age, he probably does need to be playing top flight football every game. Didn't have a good season, admittedly, but there will be interest in him. You know, you're going back to the likes of Michael Hector, Tim Ream, Joe Bryan, Josh Onema, maybe. I just don't know that that's going to be good enough to get them back up. And I don't think Parker will, will repeat the trick. It's really disappointing. Really, really disappointing. With that squad to finish that poorly. Um, they still have a chance. Look, they still have a chance. 
They have six games left to save themselves. Unfortunately for them, it is a tough run. And they've got Arsenal away next. Then they've got Chelsea away. Then Burnley at home, Southampton away, Manchester United away. And then they finish the last day of the season with Newcastle. So realistically, they need to be within three points in Newcastle. They're currently six points behind. And they have a tough run in. For Wolves, it's a good win. It's an important win. Books a little bit of a trend there. They hadn't won in a while. So gets them back on the right track. They've had a massively disappointing season, obviously. They will not have envisaged themselves being 12th at this point of the season. Uh, They're six points behind Villa, who are 11th. Villa have a game in hand on them. So 12th is probably about where Wolves are going to finish this season. Um, they've got Sheffield United away, sorry, Sheffield United at home, then Burnley at home, then West Brom away, Brighton at home, Tottenham away, Everton away, and Manchester United at home. So the next four are all winnable games. The next four are games you would expect them to win, three of them at home, the one away one to West Brom. The last three are difficult. But if they can at least string a few results together, maybe they can go and take, you know, a point at Tottenham, a point at Everton. They could well beat Everton at home. Everton's home form has been poor this year. You wouldn't expect them to get much off United on the last day of the season, but you, you, United might not have anything to play for by then. They might be might be secure. They will be secure in fairness. So maybe, maybe they can pick something up. And if United are resting players ahead of a potential Europa League final, maybe there's something there for them. But a disappointing season overall for Wolves. And uh, I think there'll be question marks this summer. There are rumours that they're up for sale. That the the ownership are prepared to pull out. A lot of uncertainty in China. Major brands been told, bring your money home. You'll get tax breaks. Otherwise, your tax levels are going to go up. Would new ownership be willing to continue the project? That Wolves have have begun, I don't know. So maybe the likes of Ruben Ruben Neves, the likes of Pedro Neto, will become available. It would be a shame. It really would be a shame. But um, it's a good team that that should have done better this season. There's just no doubt about that. Uh, into Saturday then, Manchester City won. Leeds United two. Leeds going to the Etihad and winning despite playing the the entire second half with 10 men. Um, Stuart Dallas had put them 1-0 up, a nice low left-footed finish into the bottom corner. Liam Cooper was sent off on 41 for a fairly, fairly nasty challenge. He was initially booked, but the VAO replay uh, showed that it it was a red card challenge. Unfortunately, for Cooper, and I don't think he's a dirty player. I really don't. I think he just misjudged the hop of a ball. So off he went, and from there it was one-way traffic. City absolutely... Now, they had been dominant before that, but after that it, it was back-to-the-wall stuff for Leeds. City dominated the game. Ferran Torres got an equaliser on 76, and you really couldn't have watched that game thinking there was anything going to happen other than City winning it. But... Stuart Dallas again 
gets played through, gets the run on John Stones, who gets caught out of position, heads on and uh, and beats Ederson in the 1v1. Really good finish, really well taken goal. And, you know, you look at the, the statistics for the game. City had 29 shots, seven on target, 72% possession, um, nine corners. Leeds, 28% possession, two shots, both on target, both ended up in goals. They had, uh, they had nine, oh, sorry, they had three corners in the game. They got absolutely battered and still managed to win the game. It was really, really impressive for Leeds to defend that well, and not just defend that well, but to to show that kind of resilience against a team in City who, you know, they, they've been so dominant this season. I really, really was impressed by Leeds at the weekend. I thought it was a very, very well-organized, embattled, disciplined performance. And I'm thrilled for them. Absolutely thrilled for them. It's great seeing a newly promoted team doing so well. Um, they now sit 10th. They're a point ahead of Villa. Villa have a game in hand. That's against Everton. So not an easy one. Um, they're level on points with Arsenal. Like, they're only 10 points off West Ham in fourth. Now, they're not, obviously, they're not going to catch West Ham. But in part, it's because of what a strange season it's been. But for them to only be 10 points off the Champions League and 19 points clear of the team in 18th, I think that shows how good they've been, what a level they've established for themselves. You'd hope that they won't have, you know, a case of the Sheffield United's next season. I don't think they will. I think they'll invest properly this summer. Victor Orta is very good at what he does. Bielsa is obviously one of the best in the league. Um, Their aversion to draws is great. They've only drawn three games all season. It's the least in the league. They do want to cut down on some of those defeats. And they definitely want to concede less goals next season. But everybody should be impressed by Leeds. They've gone and matched pretty much everybody this season. They do have a difficult enough run in. They've got Liverpool next. Uh, that's at home. Then they get Manchester United at home. Now, they lost both of those games early in the season. Liverpool, they lost 4-3. Liverpool gifted them two goals. They did get comprehensively outplayed, but they did stand up to Liverpool uh, and give a good showing. United beat them 6-1. That was obviously a very disappointing result for them. Little chance for revenge there. Then they go to Brighton. Then it's Spurs at home. Then they've got Burnley away, Southampton away, and West Brom at home. So the last three winnable games, four of the last five probably winnable. The three others against Liverpool, United, and Tottenham will be difficult, but they are all at home. So, look, 50 points is is definitely a strong possibility. 50 points for a newly promoted team will be a great result. They can go even 55 that would be a great return by Bielsa. What a manager. What an incredible manager that man is. Um, for City, the result is kind of academic. The title is, is as good as wrapped up. Uh, even with the defeat, they're still 11 points clear. United do have a game in hand, but 
11 points at this point of the season. They've only got six games left. Um, up next for them, they've got Dortmund in the Champions League second leg on Wednesday. That's away. Then they've got Chelsea in the FA Cup semi-finals. Their next league game is away to Aston Villa. Then they get Tottenham in the EFL Cup uh, final. Then they're away to Palace. Then they have Chelsea at home, Newcastle away, Brighton away, and Everton at home. Chelsea will be a difficult game, obviously. Villa away won't be easy. But the rest of them, Palace, Newcastle, Brighton, Everton, they're all games you'd expect them to win. City will win the league comfortably. They'll win it by 10-plus points. And um, and they'll be deserving champions. There can be there can be no doubt they'll be deserving champions. Um, they need 11 more points from their six games to be guaranteed the title. The max United can get to is, is 84. City currently have 74. City do have a 17-goal... Um, 17 goal advantage over United as well. So in truth, they need 10 more points. They're going to get 10 more points. Put the bows on it, hand it over. The title is theirs, and, and congratulations to them. Um, third game then: Liverpool two, Aston Villa one. Uh, Liverpool making it difficult for themselves, but being aided in doing so by a very strange call on an offside. Diogo Jota was fairly clearly onside, uh, set up Bobby Firmino for a goal after a good bit of a good bit of play by Trent Alexander Arnold. And it was called offside, and yet I've seen multiple diagrams showing that the line they drew from Jota's arm was on an angle. It was tilted. It wasn't straight. Makes no sense to me how how they continue to mess this up. Um, it's a similar situation in that Wolves game, where I thought the player looked very clearly onside. And again, I've seen similar types of diagrams showing he was onside. But look, it is it is what it is. As it happened, Ollie Watkins put uh, put Villa one nil up on forty three. Poor defending from Liverpool. James Miller gave the ball away. Uh, in a dangerous position. Nobody closed John McGinn. Quebec didn't get tight enough to Watkins. And, and Watkins' shot should have been saved by Alison Becker. Uh, Watkins had given Nat Phillips a very tough half up to then. Watkins played well in this game. As expected, he's a good player. He's caused Liverpool problems you know, in the past, in that 7-2 early in the season. So it was expected that Watkins would cause Phillips uh, problems. Um, pace and skill will always call, cause Nat Phillips problems. But Liverpool overcame. Uh, 57 minutes. Left-footed shot by Andy Robertson. Really good save by Emmy Martinez. Salah on the, on the follow-up. Takes it well. Villa defended quite well for the most part. Tyron Mings had a couple of Tyron Mings moments. But for the most part, Villa defended very, very well. And you can see why they've got a good defensive record. Uh, Ezri Khan's in particular just remains exceptional. 91st minute. Thiago gets the ball, plays it wide to Shakiri, who returns the pass. 
on the volley, Thiago again draws a great save, an absolutely world-class save from Emmy Martinez. And unfortunately for Martinez, the ball goes to the one person he probably didn't want it to go to. Trent Alexander-Arnold on the edge of the box, shifts the ball inside and just bends a beautiful shot into the side of the net. Martinez can't get close to it. It's a brilliant, brilliant finish. And it started up the debate again about whether or not Trent Alexander-Arnold should move into midfield. And I note that Ken Earlies has written an article in the Irish Times. And I think Ken Earlies is a, is a very, very good uh, journalist. But he's written that Trent should move into midfield or he'll regret it. I don't think he will. I really don't think he will. Why would he regret becoming the best right back potentially the game's ever seen? With his passing ability, his crossing his position as the primary playmaker for Liverpool, why would he regret not playing in midfield? For all intents and purposes, he does play in midfield when Liverpool have the ball. So I don't see why he'd be all that worried about it. There's also no evidence that Trent can play in midfield at the Premier League level. Yes, he played there at youth level. But like, there's loads of players that played centre-back at youth level and ended up at full-back. There's loads of players that played as a winger at the youth level and ended up as fullbacks. We don't know that Trent can play in midfield at the Premier League level. And if he can, we don't know that he can play there at a level good enough to get in the Liverpool team. We know that he's a brilliantly talented footballer, but he's a brilliant right-back. His defensive issues are always overblown. His, his attacking force is always understated. I really didn't understand Early's article. He said that Gerard broke through as a right-back. That's not true. He may have come on in his debut as a right-wing-back, but he certainly didn't break through as a full-back and then move into central midfield. He came through as a central midfielder. Just in that game, he happened to go into the team as a right-back. He mentioned David Beckham. Look, completely irrelevant. Different case. Different player, different era. There was comparisons made to Kevin De Bruyne. Oh, you couldn't imagine De Bruyne playing as a, as a fullback. No, you couldn't. But De Bruyne has a different skill set to Trent. The only things they have in common are they're both exceptionally talented. And they can both cross a great ball. But De Bruyne is a totally different type of player. Trent is best with the game in front of him. That's what he wants. He wants the game in front of him so he can get a picture of things and put the ball where he wants to put it. He gets that from right back. He'll get it less in centre midfield. He mentioned Philip Lamb. Yeah, Lamb moved into midfield late in his career. Played as a defensive midfielder for a couple of seasons when he was in his 30s. Maybe Trent can do it then. Lamb couldn't have moved at 22. Lamb couldn't even get in a team playing right back at the age of 22. He mentioned Josh Kimmich. Ignoring the fact that when Bayern bought Josh Kimmich, he was a midfielder. And Pep didn't feel he was good enough in midfield at that time, but saw a lot of traits in him and moved him to right back. So it's, a, again, a completely different 
set of circumstances. Now, Trent has never given any hint that he's unhappy at right back. Playing at right back, he gets more of the ball than he would, and more time on the ball than he would in centre midfield. If it's not broke, don't fix it. People want Liverpool to move him into midfield, which then creates a big hole at right back. There's a a shortage of top-class right-backs in the game right now. So it would make no sense to move him, where where there's a glut of central midfielders. So it makes no sense to move him. Absolutely none. Leave him where he is, let him continue to play. Um, Good result for Liverpool. Keeps them in the Champions League mix. They are three points behind West Ham, two behind Chelsea. They sit sixth. Then over three-point cushion on Spurs and a five-point cushion on Everton, but Everton do have the games in hand. Uh, for Liverpool, they've got Leeds next. That's away. Then Newcastle at home. Manchester United away. Southampton at home. West Brom away. Burnley away. And Crystal Palace at home. Now, Leeds and Manchester United will be difficult games. The rest, the other five, Liverpool should win all of them. However, they failed to beat uh, Newcastle first time around this season. They failed to beat Southampton. They lost to Southampton, in fact. They drew at home at West Brom. They lost at home to Burnley. They did beat Crystal Palace by seven. But, you know, the others, they struggled with first time around. Liverpool's home form... That's the first home win in like four months in the league. Um, It stopped a run of six defeats at home in a row. They need to carry that on because, you know, Newcastle, Southampton and Palace all at home going to be defining games. The toughest games, obviously, are Leeds away and United away. Um, United have been poor at home, though, so maybe there's something there to be had. The Leeds game is going to be difficult. Liverpool need to sort themselves out. They've obviously got the Champions League against Real Madrid. On Wednesday, the second leg. But again, they're you know that's at home. They're 3-1 down from the first leg. The home form needs to continue to be sorted out. But it is three wins on the hop at home for Liverpool. Uh, for Villa, look, they're, they're in mid-table and they're not going to go down. They've survived another season. They've improved massively. Their game's left. They've got um, two against Everton, home and away. They've got Man City at home, West Brom at home, United at home, Palace away, Spurs away, Chelsea at home. It is a tough run-in. It's one of the tougher run-ins, in fact. But they do still have eight games left, so they can still pick up the points to maybe get themselves, you know, eighth, maybe even seventh if Spurs continue to struggle. But as things stand... A really good season for Villa that they've got to be proud of. Grealish is going to miss another couple of weeks. That's a big blow for them. They do lack creativity without him. Barkley isn't playing well and obviously has lost his place in the team now. Um, and obviously bad news with, with, with Trezeguet. Looks like a, a torn ACL for him. So that's not ideal either. But they just have to get through to the end of the season. They're, they're comfortable. They're not in any trouble. They're going to be in the Premier League next year. They'll spend again this summer. Dean Smith just needs to figure out what he needs and, and how to go about getting it with their new director of football. Uh, aside from that, everything's good for Villa. 
And then the fourth game, the last game on Saturday, was Crystal Palace 1, Chelsea 0. Chelsea flew out of the blocks, 3-0 up after 30 minutes. Havertz, Pulisic and Kurt Zuma, they looked really good for that half hour. They really, really did. They took their foot off the pedal a little bit after that and the game got a bit more even. But Palace only had one shot in the whole game. They scored from it with Christian Benteke and a header, but they got absolutely blown away at home. Pulisic made it 4-0, sorry, 4-1 with a, you know, a well, another well-taken goal. Kai Havertz playing as a false nine is absolutely the way to go for Chelsea. They lined up with Havertz with Pulisic and Mount behind him. I'd like to see it be Pulisic and Werner. When, when Werner's back in favour, shall we say, I'd like to see Havertz as the nine. Pulisic to his right, tucked in. Um, Werner on the left, tucked in, withdrawn. Move Mount back into midfield. Let's see Mount and Kante in a two, see how that goes. Um, and then go Chilwell and James. And I, I want to see how that works, how that front seven works. Uh, defensively, they still have some issues to sort out, but they've shown good depth. They've got options. And this was more of what we expect from them. I did see people say, oh, there's no way Chelsea won't get top four with the way they're playing. They lost 5-2 to West Brom last weekend. Like, yes, they've been good under Tuchel, but they haven't been unbeatable. They haven't been unstoppable. They've struggled for goals up until this weekend, and they got exposed by West Brom. So I wouldn't be overly jumping to say that they'll definitely get top four. They've positioned themselves well, though. Uh, they're one point off West Ham with seven games to go. Two points ahead of Liverpool, obviously. Um, next for them, they've got Porto in the second leg of the Champions League. They hold a 2-0 advantage from the first leg. Then they've got Man City in the FA Cup. Then their league games, Brighton at home, West Ham away. That one's big. Fulham at home. Man City away, Arsenal at home, Leicester at home, and Aston Villa away. It's a difficult run-in. It's probably the hardest of any club in the mix for a top-four finish. So they are going to have to overcome quite a bit there. And obviously it looks like they'll be through to the semi-finals of the Champions League, so that'll be more games on their plate. If they beat City in the semi-final of the FA Cup, that's the final added. So again, it's just more games added to the mix. So Tuchel's going to have to manage the squad. Now, he's lucky enough, it is, a, it is a big squad full of talent. But it won't be all that easy. Uh, those, are, those are tough games in that run-in. For Palace, I mean, they looked like a team that gave up. They really did. They've got Leicester away, City at home, Sheffield United away, Villa at home, Arsenal at home, and then Liverpool away on the final day. Um... Not the most difficult run-in, but not the easiest one either. Um, some winnable games, some you'd expect them to drop points in. They're going to be fine anyway. It won't really matter. Hodgson's not taking them down. One win is all they will they really need to be mathematically safe. They'll get that against Sheffield United, who are almost certainly going to break the record for most defeats in a Premier League season. And Palace will be fine, but... A bit of a damp squib end to the season. Uh, if this is how Hodgson goes out at Palace, and rumours are that Eddie Howe has had had discussions there, which you know has kind of been expected. Um, 
if this is how Hodgson goes out, it's kind of fitting for him, isn't it? Um, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back. Right, welcome back. On to Sunday's games. Uh, Burnley 1, Newcastle 2. Second week in a row that Burnley throw away a lead. They went in front after good work from Chris Wood. Set up Vidra for a tap-in. Good finish, but a, you know, a glorified tap-in in fairness. But it is good to see Vidra scoring goals at the Premier League level. That partnership with him and Wood does seem to be something that works. Uh, Burnley had a remarkable 24 shots on goal. Very, very unshawn dyche like Almost let the lads, you know, off the reins. Um, I mean, Newcastle fought back. They looked dead and buried at halftime, I have to say. They really did. They didn't look like a team that were going to get back into this game. But they did. Alan St. Maximum, match winner for them. Uh, set up the first goal. Really good finish from, from Jacob Murphy. And it passed the ball into the net. About 17 yards out on the angle. Really, really good finish. I don't know why Jacob Murphy hasn't played more this season. Because when he does play, he seems to have impacts. He can play right back. He can play right wing back. He's obviously a winger by trade. They have struggled to get any kind of productivity from right back or indeed left back this season. I'm not sure why Murphy hasn't played more. So maximum, you can tell why Newcastle fans say they miss him so much when he plays because he does make an impact. He's very, very frustrating. A little like Adama. Similar skill set in that you know his primary ability is dribbling, but when he's on form, he really does he really does unlock defenses. Just beats defenders for fun, and that's what he did for his goal. Beat the defender, nice finish with his left foot into the bottom corner. Uh, Bailey Peacock Farrell, no chance really with either Newcastle uh, Newcastle goal. Um, Newcastle maybe could have had a penalty in the first half. Tarkovsky with a high boot on Longstaff wasn't given. A little bit of a controversial one. I can see the logic either way, being completely honest. I, I can see the logic either way, but you know, it could have happened for them, but that was kind of their only chance in the first half. Second half, they, they did play well. Uh, credit to Steve Bruce and his coaching staff. They, they made adjustments at halftime, and the team did play a lot better uh, once the maximum came on. Uh, Almiron almost made it three which maybe wouldn't have been a fair reflection on the game, but you know it would have been nice for Newcastle to get that uh, get that bump. Like I say, for Burnley, it's the second game in a row where they have thrown away uh, an early lead uh, after going two up at Southampton last week. They've got Manchester United away next, then Wolves away, then West Ham at home, Fulham at, Fulham away, Leeds at home, Liverpool at home. And then away to Sheffield United. It is a difficult run. There are a couple of winnable games, Fulham and Sheffield United. But the rest of them, you kind of figure them to struggle. Now, luckily enough for them, they do have a seven-point um, lead over Fulham. So they should be fine. They should be fine. They're still in the mix for relegation. Um, you kind of feel like if they'd won either the last two, that probably would have made them safe. But I'd still back Sean Dyche to always keep the team up. He's he's just one of the better managers in the league. He does a really good job under difficult circumstances at, at Burnley with, with no money to spend. Hopefully we'll see some investment in the squad this summer. 
the new ownership are really going to have to step up this summer. They didn't do anything in January. Apparently, the ownership were frustrated by that. They wanted to, they wanted to be aggressive. We'll wait and see how they do in, in this January, in this summer window coming. Um, for Newcastle, it gives them a six-point cushion on Fulham, and that is huge at this stage of the season. They also have a game in hand, which is also big, and they play Fulham. So they've got West Ham at home in the next game. Then they go to Liverpool. Then it's Arsenal at home, away to Sheffield. Uh, sorry, away to Leicester, at home to, to Man City, at home to Sheffield United, and then Fulham away on the last day of the season. It it's difficult. Like there's no point in sugarcoating it. There's five games coming up that you would expect Newcastle to lose. West Ham are in the top four mix. Liverpool are in the top four mix and defending champions. Arsenal, it just depends on which Arsenal you get in any given day. But Leicester are in the top four mix. Man City are going to win the title. Other than Arsenal, you would expect them to lose all five, all, all four, four of those five games and potentially that Arsenal won too. But the last two, they're games they should win. They are games they should win. They should beat Sheffield United at home. And they should go to Fulham and at least get a result, at least get a draw. But it's a game they could and should win. They've got a better team than Fulham when everybody's fit. Now, whether everybody be fit that day, I don't know. Um, but, you know, this probably takes a lot of the pressure off Bruce. And maybe that's not a good thing. The fan base, I think, are almost entirely finished with Steve Bruce now. But if he keeps them up... I don't know, Mike Ashley may just stick with him for another year. He doesn't want to pay him off, so he may just stick it out with him another year and hope for the best. If he does, regardless of who who the manager is for next season, they need to spend money this summer. They need to improve that defense. They need to get in another goal scorer as well to give Callum Wilson a bit of help. Uh, He's back. That's big for them. St. Maximum obviously is back. Almiron is back. They've they've got all the players back now at the key point of the season. They need to get a couple of defenders back like Lachelle's, but they have their attacking players back, and that's what they need at this point of the season. Um, After that, we saw West Ham beat Leicester 3-2. West Ham, again, third week in a row, raced into a 3-0 lead and then proceeded to concede some goals. They've conceded seven goals in their last three games and funnily come away with seven points. Uh, one win, sorry, two wins and a draw. Uh, Jesse Lingard continues his incredible form. Two goals involved in in West Ham's um, third goal. His first goal is is, is sensational. Um, Ianacho scored the two goals for Leicester. And I, I think if this game had gone 10 minutes more, I really do think Leicester would have drawn even. Um, West Ham only had four shots in the entire game. Scored three goals. Leicester had 15. Now, they only had five on target. They were a bit wayward with some of their finishing. A little bit desperate with some of their finishing. It doesn't reflect well on Brendan Rodgers that Leicester... The gap is it has closed. The, the cushion they had to sort of fourth and below has now closed. And his record, which I'm going to speak about later in the week, in late seasons under pressure is not particularly good. Now, 
they still do obviously have a two-point advantage on Chelsea, but they have to play Chelsea. They're four points clear clear of Liverpool, but they've got a much tougher run in than Liverpool. Leicester have the FA Cup semi-final against Southampton. Then they've got West Brom at home. Must win, should win. Palace at home following that. Again, must win, should win. Then they go to Southampton. Last time they went to Southampton, they scored nine. Don't think that'll happen again this season, but you never know. Then they've got Newcastle, which is going to be a tough game because Newcastle are going to be still scrapping for points. But their last three, away to United, away to Chelsea, and at home to Tottenham, is very, very difficult. And if they haven't extended their lead over the likes of Chelsea, West Ham, and Liverpool, they really are running the risk of missing out on top four for a second straight season when they should have had it wrapped up. They've dropped points in bad situations this season. You know, the Burnley defeat, at home, losing at home to Arsenal. They're not good results. The, the draw with, with Wolves, where they should have really won the game. Losing at home to Leeds. They, they've, they've dropped points they really should have taken this season. For West Ham, though, I mean, what a season. Fourth in the league after 31 games. Winning against Leicester without Declan Rice, without Mikel Antonio. Really, really impressive. A point ahead of Chelsea, three ahead of Liverpool, six ahead of Spurs, eight ahead of Everton, even though Everton have two games in hand and could potentially close it. And if Everton were to win their games in hand, which, you know, it's not outside the realms of possibility that they beat both Everton tonight and then Villa in the game in hand. That will put them right in that mix as well. West Ham's end of the season is Newcastle away, Chelsea at home, Burnley away, Everton at home, Brighton away, West Brom away, Southampton at home. It's not the most difficult run of games. Newcastle will be tough because they're scrapping for relegation. Burnley away the same. Chelsea at home is going to be massive. Massive, massive game there. If they could take a draw from that game, it'd be huge for them. Um, Everton will be tough. But those last three, Brighton, West Brom and Southampton at home, they can definitely go to Brighton and win. They should beat West Brom, who'll be down by then anyway. And if they go into the final day in a position where a win over Southampton puts them in the Champions League, you'd have to favour them. You really would. Now, I've said a couple of times, like, If you look at talent and ability, Jesse Lingard doesn't belong in the same conversation as the likes of Jack Grealish or James Madison or Jadon Sancho or any of those players. However, on current form, he's, well, Madison, obviously, I didn't speak about this, but Leicester suspended internally three players. I think it was Ayosi Perez, Madison, Somebody else. Oh, Hamza Chowdhury. Um, along with club captain Wes Morgan and Harvey Barnes, who are both out injured. Uh, after they went to a party at Iosi Perez's house, 
despite having been told to do no such thing and to, you know, stick by COVID protocols. Um, so he's out. He's missed some games. Grealish is obviously injured. But I don't know that over their careers they've ever had a run like Lingard is on right now. Like, this is by far the best Jesse Lingard has ever played in his life. By far. Even at underage level. Go back and check. He's never had a run like this. His first goal was brilliant. His second goal was clever. Made a good supporting run for Bowen. Involved in the, the build-up play for the third goal. Last week, the same thing. Got a goal and assist and was involved in the build-up for the other goal. He seems to be scoring every single game. He's never had a run like this. They've never had run like, runs like this. And if he's in this form come the end of the season, he has to go to the Euros. Has to. Because the Euros is all about form. It's a short competition. So you want players that are in form. You don't want to be bringing players that have had bad seasons or coming off injuries and things like that. You want to bring players who are right in top form. Now, some people have said that the reason Lingard is playing well is because he's a notoriously good training player who's always struggled to translate that onto the pitch in front of big crowds, and that without crowds, it's just his time to shine. That may be true. May well be true. We won't know until next season when crowds are back in, in stadiums. But for right now, despite the deficiencies in his game, despite the fact that as a player, he's not as good as Jack Grealish, and I, again, I think Grealish is not as good as people make him out to be, but he's a better player than Jesse Lingard. But in this form, Lingard has to go to the Euros. Speaking of the Euros, I did my England squad last week, and it was pointed out to me afterwards, I did leave John Stones out. I probably should have had John Stones in. Now, admittedly, he got caught for the winner uh, against Leeds, but he has had a very good season. So... I think you would have to bring him probably over to Moray. You start Konza and Stones. Konza's pace and, and defensive nous will make up for some of the deficiencies in Stones' game. So that, that's probably what you would do there. But yeah, Lingard, I think, has to go. Has to go to the Euros. Um, but for those saying, get him on the plane. Uh, England's games have been played in Wembley. They don't need a plane. Um, Manchester United went to Tottenham. Fell a goal behind after having a goal of their own disallowed and then fought back really well. Uh, United won 3-1. They thought they'd gone 1-0 up through Cavani after really nice work from Pogba to set him up. Uh, but it was ruled out after Darren Fletcher was a judge to have caught Youngman's son with a stray arm. Now, people were saying he got caught in the nose. I thought he went down holding his eye. Like, as if Fletcher's finger caught him in the eye. I don't know. Um, we've seen that foul given before. We've seen players sent off for that before. Now, I'm not saying he should have been sent off, but Lazar Markovic was once sent off in a Champions League game for exactly the same thing. Um, Son probably sold it a little bit, but at the same time, that's the game. Uh, Son would put Spurs 1-0 up catastrophic defending from United. Um, Maguire out of position, which meant everybody had to shift across one, which, as the ball worked round and found its way to Sun, meant that Aaron Wan-Bissaka was 15 yards out of position. 
you won't hear much about it on on Monday Night Football, but you know it is what happened. Um, and Tottenham, I think at halftime, Tottenham looked like the stronger team. They went in in the ascendancy. They came out cowardly, absolutely cowardly, and sat back and and tried to hold on to a lead, which you just can't do when your central defensive pairing are Eric Dyer and Joe Roden. You just can't. You cannot sit back and hold a, hold a game with those two as your centre backs. Not when Aurier is the right back and Regulon is left. Regulon's really good, but he's an attacking player. He's not a good defensive left back. He's got pace and he blocks crosses, but his positional sense is not great. He's not particularly good in the air. Gets dragged out of position a little bit. Roden's still learning how to play at, at the Premier League level, and, and he's probably been Spurs' best centre-back this year, but that's a very low bar. Eric Dyer is just not very good. He's just not very good. It's as simple as that. And Aurier always has a mistake in him. But when Spurs lined up with Lacelso, Heusberg, and Endembele in midfield, you thought, right, they're really going to go for it today. And for half the game, it looked like they were. And then they just went back to the old Mourinho thing of sitting in, clinging to a, a, a lead, and letting it fall through the fingers. Um, Fred made it 1-1. Cavani made it 2-1. And then Mason Greenwood put the cherry on the cake in the 96th minute. Um, he can really strike a ball. When he when he makes proper contact, it is a thing of beauty. A um, lot of discussion over Spurs right now. The Athletic, I think it was Jack Pitbrook, had a story that Kane has reached the end of his patience with Spurs and would like to leave this summer if they don't make the top four. Um, Hard to deny him. Hard to argue with the fact that he may want to move on. The question is, he's got a long time left on his contract. And Daniel Levy is not going to accept anything less than a premium sum for his star man. Which has a couple of complicated factors. Number one, Harry Kane will turn 28 this summer. And number two, he has a chronically injured ankle. So who's going to pay what will likely be somewhere in the region of 150 million for a 28-year-old with a bad ankle? Who's one bad knock away from being Dean Ashton and being done at 28? And obviously, you know, careers back. Dean Ashton was really, really good didn't become Kane, but was really, really good up until he hurt his ankle and was retired by, I think, 28. Kane has had that many problems with his ankle that it could well go the same way. It would be such a shame. If he was 100% fit, he's a guarantee. If he didn't have that ankle knock, you'd be guaranteed that City, United, PSG, probably Chelsea, probably Real, probably Bayern, and probably Juve would all have interest in him. Whether they'd be willing to go to that price or not, I don't know. I think PSG would. Pochettino may hold some sway there. If he leaves, I think PSG is probably the most likely destination for him. 
unless he's adamant he wants to stay in England. If he goes to PSG, he'll score 50 a season. It, it won't even be fair what he'll do in the French League. And the physical side of things might be less, well, it will be less than you know, in the Premier League. Manchester United might pony up that cash for him. I don't think City would pay that kind of money. As I said, I don't think they'll pay it for Haaland. I don't think they'll pay it for Kane. Juve, probably not in a situation to do it this summer. Real, definitely not in a situation to do it. Bayern, Bayern could pull it off if they wanted to. But they already have Lewandowski. Now, I know he's pushing towards the end of his career. But while he's still banging in goals at the current rate, there's no real rush to do it. And Kane would only be a short-term replacement because, again, he's 28 this summer. So I do think it'll be, if he leaves Spurs, it'll be United or PSG. It just depends on whether he wants to stay in England or not. But it will not surprise me if he asks to leave Spurs this summer. It really won't. Because he's he's too good to not be in the Champions League. And then the question is, if he stays at Spurs next season, who's going to be managing him? Because I don't think Mourinho can stay. I really don't. And I, I love Jose. I think Jose is one of the greatest managers the game has ever seen. And I think his run from when he took over at Porto and he won the league title in the 02-03 season. From there, up until when he came back to Chelsea and won the title at the end of 2015, and even then he wasn't quite the same. I would actually say from, from the 02-03 season to the 11-12 season with Real, which is 10, 10 seasons, I think that 10-year period is one of, if not the greatest 10-year stretches we've ever seen any manager had have. Bob Paisley probably slightly above. But two league titles with Porto, two league titles with Chelsea, two league titles with Inter, league title with, with Real. Nine titles, four different leagues, sensational. Absolutely sensational. Two Champions Leagues, one with Porto, one with Inter, a UEFA Cup, Portuguese Cup, an FA Cup, a Coppa Italia, a Coppa del Rey. The major cup competitions in each of the four leagues. Since then, in the nine years or whatever since then, one league title, that was with Chelsea, a League Cup with Chelsea, a League Cup with United, and a, a Europa League with United. He hasn't been close to the same manager. Something broke with him at Real when he lost the dressing room. It was the first time it had ever happened to him. You look at his Porto team, his first Chelsea team, and his Inter team, and those players would have absolutely gone to war for him. And when they speak about him now, they still speak in this revered way about him. But he lost the dressing room at Real. He lost the dressing room at Chelsea. There were a lot of rumours that he'd lost the dressing room at United. I don't know what the situation is at Spurs, but his treatment of some players hasn't been particularly good. And he's done it publicly. That was never something he did. 
he never never publicly disparaged players until he got back to Chelsea the second time. And then he did it to Luke Shaw and he did it to Pogba. And then he went on to Spurs and he's done it to Deli Ali and he's done it to Endombele. Where everybody knew what was going on. That was very un Mourinho-esque. It shouldn't be overlooked that that 10-year run or it might, 11 seasons or whatever it was between his first league title at Porto and that league title at Real, just what an incredible manager he was and what an incredible run he went on. League title in UEFA Cup, league title in Champions League. Premier League and League Cup. Premier League. FA Cup and League Cup double, second in the Premier League. The only season he didn't win the title where he managed the full year. Got sacked the next year after falling out with Roman. Goes to Inter. Wins the league. Then wins a treble. Serie A, Coppa Italia, Champions League. Then goes to Real. Now he didn't win the league the first year. Won it the second year. But that first year, remember, that's arguably the greatest club side ever he's going up against with Barcelona. And he beat them to a league title in his second year there. The second year was always his thing. But such a strange, strange downfall. Losing the dressing room at Real obviously broke his confidence. But you can trace it back a bit before that. Go back to when Inter won the Champions League. And they did it kind of a nasty way. They played Barca in the semi-final. It could have been the quarterfinal. I think it was the semi-final. And they played this uber defensive style. And it was it was quite hard to watch. It was a throwback to the old Catanaccio days of, of Italian football. But it was effective and they won the Champions League that year. They used it against Barca, then they used it against Bayern. And unfortunately for Mourinho once he lost his confidence at Real, he began to default to that style of football. Because the year they won the league at, at Real, they played great football. The year before, they played great football. His Inter team had played great football up until doing that against Barca. His first Chelsea team are one of the most entertaining teams you'll ever see. Yes, they were defensively brilliant, but they scored goals for fun as well. Robin and Duff out wide, Drogba up front, Lampard breaking from midfield, Makaleli and Anessian holding things together, fullbacks joining the attacks. His Porto team were very exciting to watch, with Deco, Derley, Carlos Alberto. Really exciting teams. He played a four-man defensive block, traditionally, which was two centre-backs, kind of two holding midfielders. One would be a bit more box-to-box. The other one would sit. Um, Manish was the box-to-box one at Porto. It was the Brazilian that played next to him. Actually, maybe the Brazilian name was Portuguese. I can't think. Um, but that was kind of his his shape. Four-man defensive block. Fullbacks would attack. Not recklessly. They weren't like Brazilian fullbacks. But they were, you know, they were attack-minded fullbacks, the likes of Paulo Ferreira. And then he got Ashley Cole, obviously, 
at Chelsea. That's going to annoy me. What was that guy's name? Costinha was the name of that that player. Um, but his teams played good football. You know, he'd play a diamond. He'd play, you know, a box midfield. He'd play four two three one. He'd play four two one three. He was tactically flexible. He had a defensive structure that he stuck to, but he allowed his teams to play and express themselves. And then when he lost the dressing room at Real, that all went away. When he went to Chelsea, they were horrible to watch. His United team were horrible to watch. And this Spurs team are horrible to watch. They're great until they score. United were the same, Chelsea were the same. He doesn't mind them playing good football until they score. Now, in, in the big games against, you know, City, they'll play defensive from the off and try and hit teams on the counter-attack, but it, it can work as well. But once they get ahead, the counter-attacks become less fluid, they become less aggressive. I think he's burnt out, and I don't think he's the same guy. And I said when he got the job, if he's the old Jose, Spurs are in business. He'll do great there. If he's not, it's going to be a disaster. Like, he has shown across his career a preference for the early in his career, a preference for the diamond. Used it a lot at Porto, used it at Chelsea once he got Deco and Balak. I thought that's what he's going to do. He's going to play a diamond with Spurs because they have the players for it. Kane and Son up front, Delhi is the 10. Delhi will score goals for fun behind those two. Then you go Endombele and say that kind of secondary attacking ace, playmaker kind of role, similar to what Balak played from. He'll sort out defensive midfield. He'll sort out the, the more box-to-box role, the, the Makaleli and the Essien roles. He fell in love with Moussa Sissoko early in the season, then binned him off. Um, he went and got Heusberg, obviously brought him in as the holder. Never, never addressed that box-to-box role. Never addressed the centre defence. Their centre defence has been a mess. The fullbacks fit the style going forward, but the big problem was he just, from day one, he seemed to have an issue with Delhi. You know, openly saying to him in front of the group, I've heard you're a lazy trainer. That's not the way to, to approach it. It really isn't. That's, that's bad management from the off. You know, we saw on the um, All or Nothing show, like he, he wasn't great with Danny Rose either. Rose was going through a tough time in his career. Jose wasn't supportive. Now, you're not asking them to be their best friend. You're not asking them to, to go to the levels that Klopp does of building those personal relationships, but you don't need to be so abrasive all the time. You weren't like that when you were great. When you were great, you had the kind of relationships that Klopp has now. That was one of the things that made Mourinho so charming. One of the things that offset the sort of arrogance and the disparaging comments about other managers was the relationships that he had with his players. You know, Lampard, Terry, Drogba, these guys would all, to this day, take up arms and go to war for for, for Mourinho. So would the Porto boys. 
so would Inter. But the Real boys, Chelsea second time around, United, this Spurs team, I, I think they'd down tools and walk away. I wonder if Mourinho needs to just move away from interna- from from club management and go towards the international game. I wonder if maybe he will get more pleasure out of that side than than what he's getting from club football. He doesn't look like a happy man. He really doesn't. Uh, really doesn't. And it was really nice to see Luke Shaw have such a good game because Mourinho's treatment of him was was pretty disgraceful when they were at United. Um, it was really good to see Shaw have such a good game. But I do think it's time for Spurs to consider strongly moving on from Jose. I know it's going to be pricey. But if it comes down to Jose or Kane, I think you have to stick with Kane. I think you have to. If, if Kane says, I need to go play Champions League football, I think you've got to sack Jose, bring Allegri in, or somebody of that caliber who's just going to make things work. A couple of signings at the back. They've got the attacking talent. They've got good options in midfield. Like I say, get one more who can play box to box. Bit more aggressive, a bit more aggression, a bit more up tempo. It just the Mourinho thing has not worked. It just has not worked. And Roy Keane made a really good point, and he, he obviously got the usual pelters for it. But Spurs are soft, and they've always been soft. And when you looked at them over the last bunch of years, they've always been soft. Jamie Redknapp tried to make out Spurs for a bunch of great teams. Over the last 40 years. They never won a league title in that time. The last league title I think was 40 years ago. Wasn't it 71? So you couldn't. They haven't won a Champions League. So they haven't had a great team. They've had some good teams. They've won a few cups. They've always been soft. You think of that Klinsman. Sheringham. Anderton. Barnby team. It was a bit, bit soft. No real bite in midfield. You think of the Red Knapp teams. Very good. Played good football. But they were a little bit soft. And they threw away big big leads and big games. Didn't win anything. Finished fourth. Won a few games. Won a few games in the Champions League. Never got to the late stages of the Champions League. Never made a title challenge. Pochettino's team, other than when Wanyama was in the team, they they had a soft center. Alderweireld and Vertonghen, very very good players, but they're not they're cultured players. There's no not to get all Brexity and you know gammon and gravy, but there's no blood and thunder in that team. There's nobody who's going to drive you forward in that team. You know, they were a, a good team. They were nice to watch, but they were always a little bit soft and they bottled multiple run-ins. I mean, there's just no way that they didn't have by far the best team in the 15-16 season when Leicester won the title. Spurs should have won the title. Instead, they finished third when it had been a two-horse race between them and Leicester, but they bottled it so badly. They got to the Champions League final under Poch. And then they didn't turn up. They have always been soft. 
part of it is a lack of, you know, a lack of physicality at centre back. Virgil van Dijk is is very very cultured. He's a great passer of the ball, great on the ball, can carry it, dribble, take free kicks, all that kind of stuff. But that man is a physical monster who's more than happy to leave a little bit on a striker if he feels the need. Spurs have never had that. They've never had someone that would just set that flag in the ground that we're not getting pushed around here today. Liverpool have it in in multiple places. Mane's tough. Fabinho's tough. Henderson's tough. Van Dijk is tough. Robertson's tough. There's no needle in this Spurs team. Kane sticking his arse into people. That's just dirty. That's not. There's no needle in that. Heusberg is tough. That's about it. After that, they're, they're soft. There's a real softness to them. Keane is absolutely right. It is one of the reasons they've failed this season. Mourinho's a big part of it, but the, there's a lack of toughness in the team. A lack of real desire. A lack of winners. When you go through their team, who's won what? Loris won the World Cup as the weak link in an incredible French team. Brilliant. Um, Aurier, I think, won a couple of league titles with PSG. Eh, doesn't really matter. Doesn't make a big difference. Dyer's won nothing. Roden's won nothing. Regulon won a, a Europa League. But again, he's a fullback. Um, Heusberg hasn't, you know, he, he won, I think he won a Bundesliga when he was like 18 as part of a squad of at Bayern. He, I think he played twice. Um, Endembele hasn't won anything. Lacelso hasn't won anything. Son, Kane, Lucas Mora. Lucas Mora won a couple of league titles at PSG, but again, like, it's PSG. Of course, you're going to win league titles. He wasn't a starter there. Toby Alderweireld won a few Dutch titles back in the day, but there is there's just a lack of there's a lack of winners, a lack of leaders. Heusberg's the only one you'd put your hat on there as a leader. And Spurs have big big things they need to look at this season. This summer is going to be crucial because if Kane leaves, yes they could reinvest that money, but would you trust them? I I don't know. And how are you going to replace the goals? I I don't know. Spurs needed to appoint a, a director of football a couple of seasons ago. They still haven't done it. Levy still has too much input on the football side of things. Brilliant businessman. Brilliant at organizing the club, running the club. They need more decision makers on the football side of things. And one of the big decisions is going to be what to do with Kane, what to do with Mourinho. They're, they're the two big things. I'm probably going to be talking about them through the summer. Um... Four Spurs, they end up, they're seven in the league. They've got seven games to get top four. Anything other than top four will be a disaster. It doesn't look likely. They've got Everton at home. Sorry, Everton away. Southampton at home. Then City in the EFL Cup final. Silverware would be nice. Tottenham play Sheffield United in a league match that they have to win on May the 1st. Have to win. Because their last four are difficult. Leeds away, Wolves at home, Villa at home, Leicester away. That's a very difficult run-in for a team that aren't in particularly good form. 
But if Harry Kane wants to be in the Champions League, then he's going to need to wrap these boys around and have chats with them because right now, it's unacceptable, the level that they're playing at. If Mourinho's not going to inspire the team, people like Kane, people like Lloris, people like Heusberg, they need to be the ones to step up and lead this team forward. Um, it's a great result for United, obviously. Uh, their away form has been ridiculous this season. They're unbeaten in the league away. It, it has saved their season because the home form hasn't been good. But they've now got a seven-point cushion on Leicester. You can mark United in. They will be in the Champions League next season. They've won four on the hop, which is really, really good. Um, probably gets Oli a new contract. Probably means they don't go big in the transfer market, though. That's kind of been the pattern with the Glazers. If they're in the top four, they don't spend massive money. If they're out of the top four, then they do. So we'll wait and see. But my guess is they don't spend big money this summer. Um, they've got Granada in the week in the second leg of the Europa League quarterfinal. They're tuning up from the first. Then they go Burnley at home, Leeds away, Liverpool at home, Villa away, Leicester at home, Fulham at home, and they finish at Wolves. There's some tough games in there, but they've already done enough. They'll beat Burnley at home. I'd expect them to get a result at home to Liverpool. Um, they'll beat Fulham at home. And then their away form has been so good. You know, they've got um they've got three home game three away games, Leeds, Villa, and Wolves. Can they go the season unbeaten away from home? It, it looks likely. It does look likely at the moment. Um and credit to Ollie, he's he's done well. Um last game then Arsenal three, Sheffield United uh nil. Run of the mill win for Arsenal. Lacazette looked very good. Saka looked very good. Thought Danny Ceballos had one of his better games of the season. Um Lacazette made put it put them one nil up. Nice a little bit of interplay uh with Ceballos involved with the final pass. Uh Martinelli made a two and then Lacazette made a three. Felt Felt quite sorry for Aaron Ramsey, who was badly let down by a defence that just allowed Arsenal to play through them um, endlessly. Sheffield United looked like a badly coached team in this game. They really did. They didn't look like they've done a whole bunch in the training ground of late. Um, I know they've got injuries, but I, I don't understand. Like You're going down. There's no real chance of anything else. You're going down. You should be preparing for next season. I don't know why Ream Brewster's not starting every game. You've got to start playing him. Otherwise, like his confidence must be in the toilet anyway. But surely you've got to give him a chance to get reps, get minutes on the pitch, maybe get a goal or two. Like You had some half-decent opportunities in this game that if it, they'd fallen to him rather than Ollie Burke, who, with the greatest respect, couldn't hit a, a barn door with a banjo. Um, I, I don't know what you're doing. I really don't know what you're doing. Jaden Bogle should be starting for them as well. They've got to start planning for next season. It's bad enough you're going down. You're going to go down in record-breaking fashion. Um, they've lost 25. I think 29 is the record for most defeats in a Premier League season. Um, let me have a quick look for this. Most defeats in a Premier League season. 29. Yeah. So, that was Ipswich in 94-95. Now, that, I think, was a 46-game season. 
Sunderland in 05-06, they were a record-breaking low in terms of points that year. And Derby um, in 07-08, that is the current record for most or for least points. Luckily, Sheffield United have have passed that. They can't go worse than that. And um, that was 11 points. So they've got 14. So they've at least avoided that horrendous record. Um, but yeah, they're well on track to lose the most games in a Premier League season. Now, they they could still break a couple more records <laughs> for um for being dreadful. But you'd you'd hope you'd hope that they won't have any more bad luck than that. Uh, coming up next for Sheffield United and their fourteen points this season. They've got Wolves away. It's hard to see them winning there. Uh, Brighton at home. That's a potential one that they could take some points from. Spurs away. Palace at home. Everton away. Newcastle away. Burnley. They need to uh, take points from three of those games. Sorry, four of those games to avoid joining... Ipswich, Sunderland, and and Derby on 29 defeats. They need points from four of them. Brighton Brighton at home is a game they could get something from, as is Palace at home, as is Burnley at home. Wolves away looks like a defeat. Tottenham away looks like a defeat. Everton away looks like a defeat. Newcastle away is the other one that maybe they could get something from. If Newcastle are safe by then, maybe they can get something from that game. But as it stands, I think they lose... I think they lose a minimum of four games, which will put them on 29 defeats for the season, which is just desperate. Absolutely desperate. Um, They're going to struggle to break 20 points. West Brom have 21. They're going to end the season bottom. It is... It's been a disaster. There's no other way around it. Um, for Arsenal, though, it's a good win, run of the mill. But every win's a good win when you're ninth and when you're tenth. They're now ninth in the league. Um, they'll be disappointed with how their season has gone. But look, it's not all it's not all over yet for them. They still have the second leg of the Europa League in Slavia Prague in the week. One one from the first leg, so that's a little bit of a disadvantage for them with Slavia getting the away goal. They got Fulham at home in the league. Then Everton at home, Newcastle away. Three winnable games. West Brom at home, four winnable games. Chelsea away is tough. Palace away is tough. Brighton at home. There's, I think there's five or six winnable games there for Arsenal. They should rack up some points here between now and the end of the season. Um, hopefully Smith Rowe is back soon. And hopefully Odegaard is back soon. Because I want to see more of those two together. Uh, especially with Saka. And see what Arsenal have, but it hasn't been a good season. You know, ninth is never acceptable for Arsenal. As I said the other day, I I do think the job is too big for Arteta. They're another club that could be looking to make a change this season. I think if you look up and down the league, City will be happy, United will be happy, Leicester will be happy, West Ham will be thrilled, uh, Chelsea will be uh, managers. I'm talking about. Chelsea, Liverpool happy. Spurs, I don't think they can be happy. Everton should be happy. The fan base might not be, but they should be. Arsenal can't be happy. 
Leeds are, are thrilled. I think Villa will be happy enough for now. Wolves had raised question marks over Nuno's future. I think Palace definitely need a, a change. Southampton, I'm unsure on. I, I really like Hassan Hüttel, but I, I don't know. Like the second half of the season has been so poor. Um, I, I think there'll be some question marks. I think ultimately they'll stick with him, but I think there'll be some question marks. Uh, Burnley and Brighton will be happy with their managers. They've, they've both got good managers. They just need to make some moves in the transfer market. Newcastle can't be happy. Canton shouldn't be happy. Fulham Canton shouldn't be happy. And West Brom, there's no chance Sam is going to the championship. And Sheffield United already need a new manager. So there's eight of the 20 clubs that could potentially change manager this, this season. Eight. I think in all likelihood, I think Arsenal will stick with Arteta for at least the first half of next season. Tottenham, I think, I think we'll see a change. Wolves, I think, will probably stick. Palace will change. Fulham will change. No, Fulham. I think Newcastle and Fulham might stick. The bottom two will change. I think there's eight that should should strongly look at changing managers. I think there's only four that will, if I'm honest. I think there's four that will. And two of them won't be playing in the Premier League. So, you know, it is what it is. We'll wrap up quickly with the gossip. Uh, Arsenal plan to hijack West Ham's bid to sign Jesse Lingard. They don't need another player in that role, that area. Unless they're not going to keep uh, Odegaard, they don't need a player in that area. He's 28. Go for your rebuild, Arsenal. Don't buy players in between. Go young. Buy players 23 and below. You've already got a couple of experienced players dotted around you can hang on to. Buy young, develop, and stop being stupid. Uh, Bayern Munich will attempt to bring Jurgen Klopp to the nonsense. 90minutes.com. Garbage. Um, Bayern president Herbert Hayner is fully convinced Hansi Flick will remain in charge at the Alliance Arena. Rumours are that's going to depend heavily on whether or not they beat PSG in the Champions League, which is a bit a bit of a harsh bar to set. Uh, Liverpool must move quickly to sign Pedri from Barcelona as his release clause will r- rise if he signs a new contract. I don't think there's any chance Pedri is leaving. I really don't think there's any chance he will leave Barcelona. Um, Paris Saint-Germain have contacted Mohamed Salah's reps Talk about a summer move. Uh, no, no. Just I think that's his agent playing silly beggars because they're in contract negotiations at the moment. Um, PSG and former Tottenham manager Mauricio Pochettino have approached Harry Kane about the possibility of a reunion. So I think that one's more likely, to be honest. Um, Manchester United are obsessed with signing Pau Torres, who's also wanted by Bayern Munich and Real Madrid. Um Good centre-back, not great. Him and him and Maguire would require Maguire to move from his preferred left-side centre-back role to the right side. He'll have to relearn that position. He hasn't played there regularly, I don't think, since leaving Sheffield United. He's, Torres, he's, he's quick. He's quicker than Maguire. He's not lightning quick, though. He's not the kind of athlete you'd need. He's not a dominant player in the air can get shoved around a little bit. I, I wouldn't be massively keen on him in the Premier League, but he is a good player. Um, but I think they'll overpay. I, I think they'll buy Tyron Mings, if I'm being honest. Um, 
a summer departure for from Manchester United for Edinson Cavani will be complicated by a two million clause in his contract. The Uruguayan has been strongly linked to Boca Juniors. I don't know what that clause would be. I doubt he has to buy himself out of it. I think it's a one-on-one deal he signed. One year with an option for a second. I, th- I think he probably will leave. Um, Inter Milan do not want to sell. Sorry, Inter Milan do not want to sell Italy midfielder Nicolo Barella, despite strong interest from Chelsea, Bayern Munich and Atletico Madrid. I can understand why they wouldn't want to sell him. He is a fantastic Fantastic player. Um, Juventus's talks with Paolo De Bala remain up in the air because of financial pressures on the club, says sporting director Fabio Patrici. Yeah, well, maybe if you hadn't spunked all the club's money on bringing a 34-year-old Cristiano Ronaldo to the club, there wouldn't be financial pressures. And maybe if you just said goodbye to him and his 80 million a year salary, you'd be fine, you know? But no, you were out in the press last week saying, oh, no, we're definitely keeping Ronaldo. The, the guy's an idiot. Um, AC Milan will not consider selling Rafael Leao for less than €50 million. Euro. He's attracted the interest of Everton and Juventus. He's very, very talented. They bought him in from Lille, who stole him off Sporting when Sporting had that big thing where fans broke into the training ground and attacked a couple of players, and players broke their contract saying that Sporting had violated the contracts and not providing a safe work, work environment. Lille nabbed him. AC nabbed him from Lille. Um, super talented player. Probably probably the future number nine for Portugal in the long term. Guess. Uh, kind of him and Andre Silva as a two would be the way, I think. But um, really talented player who, who'd fit in well at a bunch of clubs. Um, and that's it. That is the show for today. Wee bit of a long one, I think. But um, it was a lot to get through. So apologies for that. Um, back tomorrow, as always. So until then, there's two games tonight that you should enjoy. Obviously, West Brom versus Southampton at six, and then Brighton versus Everton at quarter past eight. So give those a watch. If you're going to pick one of them, I think the Brighton-Everton one's probably a safer bet for a good game. Um, but aside from that, that's it. Take care of yourselves. Thanks to Guy. Thanks, Foxhaunt. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.